New Belgium was founded in Fort Collins, Colorado by Kim Jordan in 1991 and really pioneered the craft brewing explosion following the turn of the century. You've probably had their flagship beer, Fat Tire. It's a classic. But that's not all they pioneered. As a former social worker, Kim did everything with the human-first approach, from the company culture to their social impact. Today, though, we're going to talk about their environmental impact. While we grow frustrated day after day with large companies either doing nothing, doing very little, or greenwashing altogether, when it comes to prioritizing their role on this planet, New Belgium is one we can feel good about, one that continues to push boundaries and lead by example. You know, it's going to be nice to actually brag about a company doing the right thing in this regard, and gives us reason to hope others can do the same. In fact, New Belgium is trying to make it as easy as possible for their very own competition to replicate their environmental model, as we'll soon find out. Joining us today is Katie Wallace, New Belgium's Director of Social Environmental Impact, where she's been for 17 years. She's also a member of Climate One, part of the Commonwealth Club that connects different leaders and influential voices for discussions on dealing with our climate crisis. Katie has been instrumental in much of their recent work, which we'll talk about in just a second. And if you work at any company of any size, you're going to learn some helpful things today that you could perhaps bring back to your own place of business. Let's meet Katie right after the short break. If you want to look good this fall, feel comfortable as heck, and know you are supporting a great cause, please, please, please go check out our Polymeda hoodies and sweats, available for a limited time only. This incredible combo made with 100% green certified cotton and printed here in LA were designed by the artist Dear Dana, also my sister, and the proceeds go to help the team in Cuba fighting to protect polymeda snails. Our critical forest engineers being driven out by poaching and habitat loss and, you know, completely necessary to keeping the forest healthy in Cuba. Cuba has over 30% forest cover and it's one of the last of its kind in that part of the world. Help the polymeda snails do their part and support them with this awesome hoodie sweats combo. You can find the link in our description. All right, back to New Belgium. Our brewery was founded by um, Kim Jordan, who is a social worker and um, really brought that lens to the way that she wanted to build a business. And so, um, you know, her, her values are, are, have always been people first um, and also being outdoorsy and seeing the value of the environment to people and to businesses. Um, and, you know, really made, meant that environmental stewardship was one of her key priorities as well, since um, healthy environment is critical to ensuring prosperity for our coworkers and our community. So, um, so environmental stewardship has been there since the very beginning. Um, and, you know, even back in the early days brewing in the basement, there was a tin trash can that captured the steam off of the brew kettle and reused the heat elsewhere. So um, we've always been focused on that type of efficiency. Um, in the late 90s, um, we had the opportunity to bring wind power to Fort Collins, to our grid here. And, um, 
and our coworkers, our co-owners um, agreed to forfeit profit sharing that year unanimously so that they could help invest in, in that wind power coming to our grid. It wouldn't have otherwise happened without all of our coworkers in our company. So, um, so to your question, you know, like big vision from the founder, but also um, a really strong buy-in from every single person at the company, you know, really became embedded, embedded into our culture. Um, and we've always, you know, we've always been looking for ways to reduce our impact, whether that means lightweighting our bottles, reducing materials in our supply chain, um, working with our growers to understand best ways they can move towards regenerative practices, um, and uh, creating, you know, doing green building long before it was cool, and, and making these early investments in energy efficiency and renewable energy. Um, but then, you know, our, our program over the last 15 years or so has become really sophisticated, we conducted the first greenhouse gas life cycle assessment for beer in the world. And, um, and then we also um, started amping up our own work in that space. But as much as we can do on our own, we know we're just a small business, a you know, medium business with a medium sized impact. And, um, and as we see climate change clamping down harder and harder um, in, in recent years, um, we're much more motivated to get out there and encourage other companies to, to be acting, encourage some kind of federal level um, uh, orchestration so that we can, we can beat this thing. Back in 1999, New Belgium made headlines by moving all of their electricity to wind power via purchasing wind credits from their local utility, helping fund and fuel the growth of renewables. That's saying something because 22 years ago, nobody was asking these things of companies small or large like they are today. New Belgium did not do this to check a PR box or satisfy public pressure. They did this 100% on their own because they believed it was the right thing to do. And it was. Establishing that foundation before anyone asked any company to do so is saying something. So while Katie is being modest here and framing New Belgium's impact as medium-sized, I look at it as anything but. Impact should not be measured just by data, but rather by the boldness of what you do, how you inspire others to do the same, and putting emphasis on something other than your own bottom line growth. And they are still pioneering today. As Katie explains, the damage happening to our planet is going to fundamentally change beer itself if we don't get our act together collectively. Every year we do um, a risk assessment, we look at our how the climate is impacting our ingredients coming in the door. We also look at how it's predicted to impact our supplies um, over time. We've seen um, hurricanes decimate our fruit crops that are um, that despite you know that are in some of our beers, but more importantly, we've seen major disruptions in barley crops. Um, 2021 is reported to be the, the worst barley crop ever um, due to the sustained heat waves across the north where barley is grown. Um, and then we had um, significant damage to hops um, last year when all the wildfire smoke um, tainted this, the, the aromas of the hops. And we also had, um, as we were talking about this torched earth project, um, Colorado's largest wildfire in our state's history right here in our watershed which has cut off half the supplies of, of our water throughout the summer because of all the sediment. And so, um, so just, we're just seeing that those are just a few of many examples. Um, you know, we've had to deal with a number of risks throughout COVID and disruptions to our supply chain, but um, you know, our CEO and CFO will tell you that our, our biggest threats um, are not from that. They're actually from coming in from climate change at the moment. And, um, and so torched earth was a way to kind of bring that into real life. These ideas around, 
um, around climate change are sometimes difficult to grasp, even though they affect all of us, um, especially our most um, marginalized communities, but definitely even our businesses and, and more privileged communities as well. Um, and it's just still, still a tough thing to, to put in your hands and, and, and realize. And so, um, so Torched Earth for us was an experiment in bringing the real life you know, of the future, if we don't work on climate change, um, to, to folks' hands so they can touch it and feel it and taste it and, um, and see the impacts um, if, if we don't take action on climate. Well, you say you're a medium-sized company having a medium-sized impact, but as we, you know, we're going to get into talking about Torch Earth specifically and the um, you know, open sourcing, the net zero plan is two examples where I think you're having a larger impact than a medium impact. And, and, and for me, that's, that's something you know, I and, and, and my peers uh, talk about a lot uh, around you know, wanting companies to look at how they're impacting larger systems more than you know, their own kind of operations, um, which is kind of a segue into the net zero discussion. And wanna kind of get your take on this. So, you know, of course, New Belgium has a net zero plan and you're one of the first to, to do so in, in your industry. Um, what I'm seeing across the industry, not just beer and beverage, but across the board, everyone is, every company is not racing in net zero plans. And the concern that I, I see is a lot of companies, and, I'm, and when I say this, I'm not putting New Belgium into this necessarily, but a lot of companies are trying to get to net zero as fast as possible versus get to net zero the right way. And there is a difference there, right? I'd much rather see companies um, you know, that are leaning really heavily, I'd say on offsets, particularly the, what I call the wrong sets of offsets. Um, let's say, you know, sort of tree planting in areas where there's a lot of double counting or a lot of leakage, um, versus, you know, supporting, uh, renewable energy contracts, things like that. Um, and they're doing it, you know, rather than changing the way they're actually making their goods and services. Right. Um, and, you know, we particularly see this in the fossil fuel industry um, a little bit right now, uh, where I like talk about an industry that has like the most like the, the biggest impact. But, you know, what are your thoughts on this sort of race to net zero looking at industry wide or sort of like worldwide for a second? Then we'll hone in on New Belgium's sort of approach here. But what are your thoughts on that? Um, do you do you anticipate you know, this being a discussion point at COP26, which is coming up just a week from now. And, you know, do, would you agree that, you know, companies are better off getting to net zero, you know, at a slower rate if they're doing it the right way versus do, getting there as fast as possible, um, you know, just using accounting, which frankly, some folks, not necessarily New Belgium's case, but a lot of folks are doing. Yeah, James, I love that you're thinking about this. I wish more people had that astute understanding of um, the difference between those approaches. And um, it's something that we've seen for a very long time. Um, for many years, we, um, we decided against carbon neutral certification and the purchase of offsets to reach net zero um, because we were just concerned about the lack of standards in the United States. Um, you know, you can make all kinds of claims with very low integrity and verifiability um, around carbon neutral and, um, and unlike other countries, for example, and a lot of other developed nations, um, they have very strong, clear standards across the board. We haven't really gotten there yet in the United States. Um, and then the other thing is just the, the quality of offsets. You know, there's so many stories, and I know you are familiar with many of them, where you pay um, a small amount for the carbon offsets. They plant some trees, they never go water them. You know, the, the, the verification on those um, in some cases can be very weak. 
And so, um, so what actually um, inspired, you know, there are a couple of things that drove us to move in, in this direction um, for an interim solution of, of getting to net zero through offsets. And um, one of those is just the fact that climate change is accelerating faster than we expected. And as those studies continued to come out, um, we just felt like we had to do something more than what we were doing, right? And um, and then the second thing is that the, the quality of offsets is improving, the international standards around accountability is improving as well. And um, while you're not required in the United States to buy those really meaningful offsets, um, they are available to us. And, and that's why we chose SCS Global Services. They follow the international standards like the PAS 2060 standards for um, offset quality. But, um, but my most, you know, what I was most interested in is just seeing things like satellite technology and drone technology coming in um, and create, helping to create scalable um, offset programs like with Indigo Ag, who we've partnered with as well, um, so that we can ensure that there is a, a delivery on that commitment to sequester more carbon in the soil. Um, and we have, we have the technology and the systems that help to ensure that and, and give us confidence because as a company, we don't wanna spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on carbon offsets maybe helping a, a grower put the, you know, sequester that carbon into the soil through no-till practices or other regenerative ag practices, only to have that same grower um, till the yard or you know, till the field next year and negate all of those advancements we made. Like we really need that permanence, we need that additionality and that quality of the carbon offset. So, um, and lastly, I'll just say that um, the, well, not lastly, but one other point is I'll say that um, that we focus on transformative projects. So we see that Indigo Ag is um, offering through offering regenerative ag offsets. They are bringing um, financial stimulus to uh, growers so that they can help them transition over to regenerative ag practices, which we have seen really pay off outside of the offset revenue. They're going to they help to make um, make crops more resilient. They help to reduce inputs and costs needed in growing the crops once you build back your soil health. So, um, so we focus on projects that we know have a transformative effect in actually changing all of the infrastructure to get us towards a real zero in the future. So we invest in um, renewable energy um, offsets that are helping to transform the grid and move us away from fossil fuels. Um, we invest in things like I mentioned, Indigo Ag, that are helping growers to transition so they can actually be carbon negative um, solutions for us. And um, we also invest in like HFC phase outs for refrigerants that will help to permanently remove those um, extremely potent greenhouse gases from, from the system. So, so our strategy with offset investments is um, one, making sure they're highly credible and highly verifiable, um, but two, making sure we're focused on projects that have co-benefits and are um, and leading towards a more transformative um, uh, solution. And then finally, I'll just say, like when you're asking about COP26 or any of um, you know, the, the broader initiatives globally, um, there is a strong focus right now on absolute greenhouse gas emissions reductions. So we are committed to the science-based target initiative, um, and that is um, contextually based. Um, it's looking at the, the reductions in absolute emissions that companies must make between 2019 and 2030 in order to maintain warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius on average. And so for us, that looks like, and it's, it's regardless of growth. So for us, scope one and two emissions, 55% reduction from 2019 to 2030. And that's in the face of growth, which we are growing it's, as a company. So that's a huge aggressive commitment for our scope three emissions. It's a 30% reduction in absolute emissions 
um, and uh, from 2019 to 2030, they don't care what we're buying for offsets. That does nothing mm -hmm. to help us achieve that goal and um, and be accountable to that pledge we've made globally. Um, and you know, and so that is something that we think is equally important. I, I really like right now offsets as a way to help uh, fund the transition towards permanently, um, you know, car carbon zero projects and, and supply chains and infrastructure. Um, I think it's a really important bridge to get there. And there might be some instances where continuing to invest um, in our forests and our, in our soils um, could be a long-term offset strategy that helps to bring a revenue um, and business case to the folks that are maintaining those lands. Um, but I think largely, um, you know, we're going to we simultaneously have to maintain an absolute reduction in those emissions over time in order to really um, avert the biggest impacts of climate change, which are huge threats to all of our businesses, definitely for beer. We've written a lot about offsets here at Animalia and how they can be a bit of a slippery slope in terms of being used by companies to check the boxes of net zero, but avoid going through the actual material changes and how they source, make, and distribute their goods and services to being more environmentally forward. New Belgium is very aware of this, and it's showcasing a good reminder that offsets can be okay if two key factors are kept in mind. The first, not all offsets are created equal, even if their carbon credit says otherwise. The merit of offsets require careful scrutiny. There's a lot of leakage and double counting, for example, in the world of forestation offsets. Renewable energy credits can be valuable if the buyer has transparency all the way through, knowing that money is indeed funding renewable expansion. Carbon offsets for regenerative farming can also be worthwhile, but they can also be a trap if, say, that farm sells the next year to someone who comes in and tills the land. So careful analysis and follow-up is needed, and every company purchasing offsets should offer full and complete transparency on what they are purchasing, as New Belgium does. They also need to keep updating and tracking these offsets in the years that follow. The second point, offsets are not the long-term solution. They're a tool in the short term to help brands meet their goals, but they should be looked at as kind of a bridge solution, not necessarily a long-term answer. If a company is utilizing offsets to minimize their work and fundamentally changing their actual business in a climate-friendly way, well, those offsets are being misused. And as we're learning with New Belgium, that is not the case with them. They are absolutely going well beyond the offsets that Katie discussed. What was the decision behind open sourcing that plan? Um, how did that kind of like come about from an internal standpoint? You know, what stands out to me is that like New Belgium is putting a stake in the ground saying, hey, we don't want this to be a marketing advantage. We don't want, you know, our net zero to be a reason you're going to buy from us versus other brands. We want everybody doing this. Um, you know, we're going to continue, again, this is my interpretation. I could be totally wrong, but we're going to continue to win customers with the quality of our product, um, and the quality of our brand. Um, and that's how we're going to, that's how we've always competed. And that's how we'll continue to compete with how good our beer is. But, you know, we, we want everyone to move this direction. And so we're going to try to encourage everybody to do so by just being as transparent as we possibly can on how we're doing it. So this is my interpretation. I could be wrong in terms of like how you think of that, but what was the process internally for open sourcing that? And, you know, what has been the reaction you've gotten from, you know, other folks, in the industry, competitors, things like that since doing so? Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there, James, right? You know, if we alone are successful in our climate goals, then we're not successful in protecting our businesses and our communities going forward. 
And so, um, so we, we don't see this as like, you know, something that we alone can, can achieve. We have to work together, not just across the nation, but the globe. And, um, and I will say like, you know, we're a fraction of a percent of the beer industry and, um, I'd love for us to be able to go and make all these changes and have it make a material impact. And you know, we're definitely going to do our part, but sitting here with all the, the foresight on what's getting ready to happen here and what's already starting to happen and the way it's impacting our communities and our businesses, um, it can be fr pretty frustrating to see that other businesses aren't stepping up and doing more. And so that's why we made that tire torched earth, right? Um, so that draws attention to those 70% of those businesses that are many of them making claims, but don't really have a climate plan. And so we, we're, you know, the best thing we can do is to shout up and say, hey, we'd like to see more on this and it, it can be done. It's possible. We're a proof point of that. Um, but then we also know that there are a lot of businesses and especially those in the craft beer industry that are just a lot smaller and don't have the haven't you know don't have can't afford the resources to go understand their carbon footprint and what to do with it and how to deal with it. As you know, you know we just had that conversation with offsets. There's so many pitfalls along the way, and um, it's tough sometimes to understand like you know what you do next, what you can afford to do, and what really makes a true meaningful impact on curbing climate change. And so, um, so when we're looking kind of at this point of wishing we could do more than our, what's in our direct control, um, we, we wanted to do what we could for that, those businesses, those breweries that are smaller and haven't, don't have the resources to dedicate that we've had over the years. And so, um, so that's why we made the Carbon Neutral Toolkit. Our hope is that we, instead of every single craft brewery starting at square one, um, that they're able to start at square 10, right? And then figure out their way from there. We've already got several breweries using that toolkit and piloting it for us, and we will continue to build on it and add to it over time. But, um, but you know, I know there are a lot of craft brewers out there that really want to do the right thing. It's just tough to know where to start and how to afford getting there. And um, we, we have lots of solutions for that, whether it's local policy advocacy. And we talk about that in the toolkit. Uh, we were successful in helping to lobby our, our local city council to commit our uh, power provider here to 100% renewable electricity by 2030. That doesn't cost much to go in and, and show your business case for, for that type of commitment from the local grid. Um, we put a lot of our talking points and resources in there for that. Um, there's also some, um, some nice point, um, resources on where to start on some of your internal energy efficiency um, efforts and whatnot. And so um, we just hope that people, people can pick it up and start within any step, any chapter they want to, but there's lots of stuff to do there. And our hope is to um, supply really well intended, well-meaning, committed people with um, that jump start that helps them get down that road a little faster, because when it comes to climate change, we just don't have a lot of time to waste. Has, since, since uh, making that available, have, have you had any other kind of craft breweries reach out and, you know, ask questions of like, oh, what does this mean? Have you seen that in action in any yes. way? Yes. Yeah, definitely. We've had a number of breweries reach out and um, our, uh, one of the consultants that worked with us on this is actually helping another sizable craft brewery and building out their plan right now. Um, and we have several other breweries that have um, reached out, asked questions, asked for some clarification, um, and, uh, and said that it's been helpful in guiding their understanding of, of what happens next when it comes to climate action on their part. And so, um, so we look forward to building upon that and sharing it out more, but it's off to a good start. Um, you know, 
just like a lot of other businesses, brewers are dealing with quite a bit this past year with COVID disruptions, labor disruptions, you know, supply chain issues, can shortages, things like that. And so this is one of many things. And, um, and um, I think that one of the things we encourage in the toolkit is for graduate students who are studying this, like take that toolkit, bring it to your local brewery and ask if they want some help on that. It's an awesome way to get some experience, lend them a hand as they're dealing with a lot of other business issues. And um, you know, we've got the template for you. So hopefully it makes it a lot easier to get there. This notion of unifying against a common threat is one I want all of you to retain from this podcast. The only solution ultimately to the climate and biodiversity crises is a global one, one that cuts across all cultures, political ideologies, nations, and creeds. Maybe it's relevant to your listeners, and um, but I love E.O. Wilson's work on um, really uh, redefining how humans evolved to be successful. And it's not so much that we were, you know, the brutest, strongest, most dominant ones won. It was actually the ones that could um, you know, transcend their individual interests and unify against a common threat. And those are the people we descended from. And so, um, so that's, you know, that's how we evolved, you know, became so successful biologically, right, in an evolutionary space. And so, um, so I think that this is, if we're looking at that individual gain, then it's going to be a fragmented approach. And we won't, we know that we're not going to be successful in the face of a shared threat. And um, if we can kind of rise above that and work together as a community to solve a, a joint issue that affects all of us and that we all contribute to, um, if we can cohese at that level and the, the hive mentality on this um, work on climate action, then uh, we know that we'll have better chances of preserving our quality of life and our businesses and our beloved outdoor spaces um, for a long time to come. Ah, which brings us to Torched Earth. New Belgium made a really, really bad beer. Like, one of the worst beers you could imagine. So why would such a successful craft brewery, known for its quality, make a terrible beer? Well, to raise some eyebrows and hit people over the head, frankly, with the harsh reality of where we're headed if we don't protect this planet. So let's talk about Torched Earth. I'm, I'm super excited to talk about Torched Earth. When, when I heard about it and read about it, it wasn't just, you know, kind of shocking in a good way that you made this horrible beer, <laughs> horrible tasting beer by design, but the, more so that you actually like are like sort of selling it publicly. Like it's one thing to just say, hey, we've made a prototype of what, you know, this is going to be and we're going to give it to some journalists, you know what I mean, to taste and, and, and leave it at that. But you're actually allowing people to get it and, um, and to see firsthand. And again, this, this, this sort of points back again to New Belgium doing work to affect larger systems, not just your own operations. Because of course, even, you know, fat tire enthusiasts like myself do drink other beers sometimes. And, you know, you want them to, you know, kind of be thinking, hey, all of your beer <laughs> could go the wrong direction if we continue, you know, sort of dismantling this planet. I will say that our brewers, uh, when they were asked to make this beer, were a little bit confused. They've never been asked to make a bad beer <laughs> before. And so um, and there's a ton of pride that goes with with yeah. masters. Uh, yes, folks that yeah. don't know if like there's you can look it up online. It's not just a New Belgium thing like craft craft brewers take so much pride in their work. Uh, they take it so seriously in kind of a, a very endearing way. Um, so I imagine <laughs> the initial reaction to that was eyebrows raised. Right. 
yeah. They were pretty um, shocked. But at the same time, like they've been following, you know, the, the threats to our supply chain and seeing that come in. And so um, while I know it was like a tough thing for them to do, it was um, something they understood the value in and were excited to partner with us on. Um, this was really, I think, like we talked about before, just, um, you know, a follow up to, to our carbon neutral certification for fat tire um, last year. And um, during that time, we talked about um, beer costing $100 a six pack. So trying to make it real in the sense of people's wallets, right? Like if we, if we don't deal with climate change, we, um, we have all these supply chain issues and climate disasters and whatnot, then the cost of beer is going to go up. It is going up because of these issues today. And over the time, it could creep up to as high as $100 a six pack. And so this is like our way to make it real, you know, that and that announcement, we were talking about how it's real um, in relation to your wallet. And this one, we were like, all right, let's let's make it real, you know, in, in the beer that people, you know, hold in their hands and they drink. And so um, so that was kind of, you know, the, the project collaboration and the brewers are um, very happy to, you know, mess around with that and try things out. But we started with um, talking through what ingredients would be available in compounding climate disasters. Um, and we wouldn't have hops. And so, uh, but dandelions are bitter and dandelion roots are bitter. And so um, to replace the, um, the hops um, that are a bit more delicate and more susceptible to climate change, um, we, we put in dandelion root. Um, we use more shelf-stable concentrates, syrups, um, which we don't typically do in craft beer. And, um, and we, um, instead of using fresh malted barley, we used um, concentrates and syrups. And then, um, and then the big thing is, um, you know, the smokiness of the water. So we, that's especially real to us here in our hometown where we've had these big giant wildfires the last several years. And, um, and so uh, when you don't have a con you know, contingent water source, if you have forest fires on, um, on all of your water sources, then um, you're stuck with this smoky water. It's really hard to clean out. And it's both exponentially more ex um, expensive uh, because of the filtration required and pretty much difficult or maybe close to impossible getting out that smoke flavor um, in any financially viable way. And so, um, so that was another thing is just like kind of the char taste, like not in a good way mm. on in the beer water as well. It leaves a pretty yucky aftertaste to it. And when did you release Torch Earth? We released it on Earth Day, um, 2021. And uh, yeah, we didn't make a lot of it. We just, obviously you don't want to make a lot of beer that no one really wants to drink. That's kind of a waste of resources, but we made enough to pass it around and, um, and help to, um, to fuel the conversation around, you know, why more companies and others need to be working on climate action. What are, in terms of some of the reactions you've, you've seen from that, what are some that stand out to you or, you know, what, what uh, just kind of walk us through what has been the, yeah, the response to those that did try Torched Earth and, and yeah. And, yeah. Well, I mean, the facial expressions, there should be, you know, kind of a coffee table book of facial expressions that were pretty <laughs> um, dramatic around that taste. And, um, and then obviously the emotional reaction of not really being able to enjoy beer and, mm -hmm. and that, that feeling a bit more real. Um, we had people spitting it out <laughs> because they didn't like it. And um, so, you know, all, all ends of the spectrum there. 
Um, but, you know, we also had folks um, in DC at the White House and legislators like actually hear about it or in some cases receive it and then call us up and ask us for more because it was such an important conversation starter for some folks they were working with um, on some of these um, pieces of climate legislation. And um, of course, there's still a lot to do in that realm, um, but uh, we appreciate being able to, you know, add any more drops to that bucket um, as, you know, as we can. Did all the New Belgium employees have a sip of torched earth? You know, actually, I've talked with people who like didn't want to try it. They just like <laughs> didn't want to um, taint their their um, idea of what beer was, and they just kind of trusted it was bad. And yeah, several coworkers tried it too. And um, and I think the um, the biggest comment, especially for people who are familiar with beer and are kind of beer connoisseurs, is just that the aftertaste wouldn't leave their mouth, and um, it was pretty unpleasant. I found Torched Earth to really be quite ingenious. What better way to wake up folks to the climate crisis who are not yet there than carry that message via their beloved beer? It's really marketing gold. Were there any anecdotes? Just curious of like anybody um, who you know maybe wasn't, and you know fully, and it's not on the employee side, but on you know the public side and the different folks that that got their hands on it. Anyway, that way it wasn't fully bought into the sort of urgency of the the climate crisis but you know once they realize their beer could end up tasting like this they're they're all of a sudden okay i because like that that's the thing about like you know these things is part of the challenge you know all of us that work on this issue have always had in climate communications is stressing the urgency of the impact to you because so many people like just going trying to make it through every day right paycheck to paycheck um uh balancing family and uh, finances and it's 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 overwhelming sometimes um, to ask people to stop and and you know sort of think about this issue uh, and I don't I don't fault people that necessarily don't because of the 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 the, the challenge of day to day life for so many so many people so I'm just curious if there are any anecdotes of folks that you know were kind of pushed over the edge in the right way towards like oh okay what like I don't want this to exist um, how, what what can I do to 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 be on the right side of history here any any anecdotes of that. I didn't um, see all of the emails that came in. I know Megan and some of my other team members were looking at those more closely, um, but I definitely heard that from the folks at the at the White House that said, "Hey, this is actually helping me to advocate for stronger climate action here." And yeah. so, um, so that's why they had asked for more because I had seen it be like such a convincing speaking um, point for for uh, the folks they were hoping to influence. And so, um, but I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that happened to some degree. And I also agree with you that um, it doesn't have to be number one priority for people who are just trying to make a living and get, you know, food on the table. And, um, and you know, there's definitely a reality of Maslow's hierarchy here. Um, and it's um, something that, you know, the least we can all do is vote and support companies that we know are doing more in this space. But, um, but it's not our expectation that every single person turns a corner on this and understands it. And that's why we feel like that federal action is so critical and important to success. Like there's been um, many points throughout the, the American history where we've come together and put together federal incentives that helped to support our um, our citizens um, through through shared threats. So World War II, the Great Depression, um, the Dust Bowls, you know, that's those were when you saw the advent of things like agricultural subsidies and oil and gas subsidies. And so 
you know, the reason, one of the top reasons why the U.S. is such a prosperous country, um, you know, over time is because we band together to, um, to incentivize our system to work better for everyone in, in the face of this shared threat. And so, um, so we really definitely see that big companies and policymakers have a much bigger role here than the everyday citizen, um, but something that the everyday citizen can do is to um, write their favorite companies and write their elected officials and make sure that folks know this is something that's really important to them. Yeah, I won't name them, but I could think of several uh, U.S. congressmen and women and politicians that I would love to, you know, replace their daily beer with torched earth unknowingly. And let them know afterwards uh, yes, what's yeah. going on here. Um, but uh, we'll 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 save the names for. Uh, you can imagine who those folks are. Yes, I'm sure we're thinking of several of the same people. Yeah, I also wanted to chat with Katie about New Belgium supply chain. How are they looking at their decisions on where they source their barley, their hops, and other original ingredients given their environmental priorities? That's a great question. It's one we've. Um, played around with, noodled on, tried, failed, succeeded in some areas and, um, you know, still kind of chipping away at it. So um, we don't buy from farmers. We buy from maltsters. They malt the barley for us and then send it over to us. And so we're a little bit disconnected from our growers. And um, but, you know, we definitely visit them and chat with them, but we're not going to have the same growers every year just because of the nature of our supply chain, which has made it harder to do those really cool partnerships one on one where you can make a lot of progress do some experimentation together but uh, but we are partnered up with um you know some some thought leaders in the space of regenerative agriculture even some folks that are um growing barley and um and to your question around definitions i really hope that um, is more explicitly defined in the near future um but for sure there's some competing definitions um, at this point um we what we're prioritizing within that realm are strategies that help um to make um, farming a carbon negative solution, right? So they can sequester more carbon than, uh, than they emit and, um, and do a good job of um, drawing carbon back into the soil. Um, and then we're also looking at just soil. Soil health is a big part of that, right? Like you were talking about biodiversity before. Regenerative practices typically help to bring the life back to the soils. And, um, and that soil does a better job of retaining water. And so you, get, you don't have to use as much water, for example, on the crops. And it does a better job of, um, of fighting pests and other, other ailments that crops typically experience. And so um, our folks, our friends that are farming regeneratively, even those farming regeneratively in barley, have reported back that they actually um, save money on their pesticides and their fertilizers. Um, they say they actually get higher um, yields and also more resilient yields during with difficult weather patterns. And so it's actually, aside from any offset revenue, it's actually better for their business all around, which is a really cool, you know, co-benefit when you're, you're seeing biodiversity and climate solutions being one and the same. And, um, and there are definitely proven methods to getting there with farming today. Um, that's been, like I said, it's been tough to kind of push that in our own supply chain just for the lack of direct relationships with growers. Um, and so what we're rolling out right now with our suppliers um, is the um, enrollment goals for agricultural offsets like Indigo Ag. 
And so we're, we're paying into those offset funds and our hope is that we can direct some of that revenue towards our growers um, to get them enrolled and get barley transitioning over to regenerative practices. And so the way that Indigo Ag works is they actually incentivize you by per practice. So you can add multiple practices and increase the value of your um, revenue um, and, uh, and you can ease into it over a period of a few years or so and get to know it a little bit better. Um, so there's some lower risk for folks that are not quite sure uh, the benefits yet in the transition. Um, and then there's also things like the Sustainable Ag Initiative that um, many big uh, CPG companies are requiring from um, farmers and, um, and they automatically qualify for the SAI requirements if they enroll with Indigo Ag. So the, I think that the magic here, and we'll see how this goes, but I really do think that the magic is like um, finding those um, solutions that make better make money for those rural communities that desperately need that um, infusion of revenue right now, and um, you know we want to protect their prosperity, and that's going to incentivize them to to transition over and making sure that any of our um, climate interventions are also economic benefits for those communities as well. And, and so I hope that 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 will be what we realize in the, in the next years to come. I really love this last point from Katie. The future of agriculture is hopefully a shift away from the mass scale, big corporate farming and towards hyper-local biodynamic regenerative farming. So many smaller local farms have struggled in the last few decades as market share gets eaten up by the big mono-agricultural giants making cheap, often genetically modified crops at the expense of the soil and the ecosystem health they should be relying on. How nice would it be to see this change? Instead of having a handful of highly profitable corporate farms crushing the soul of this planet and oftentimes the communities they live in, we could have thousands of living wage, smaller family farms feeding us while also restoring our soil health and feeding biodiversity. Kind of makes me smile just thinking about it. All right, to wrap things up, I asked Katie about their corporate structure and as well as her thoughts on the UN Climate Summit. For context, she now recorded this chat just a week prior to the summit, but you'll be listening post-summit. Two final quick questions. Uh, I, you know, given New Belgium is, is you know, doing, you know, so much good work here, um, especially, you know, compared to the standard corporation, uh, uh, you know, I, I imagine the, the way you're structured, and I'm curious on where you sit in the sort of organizational uh, you know, where sustainability and your role and your team sits within the structure that others can learn from. Now, I'll give an example of a totally different industry and a different um, uh, outside of the climate spaces of, of what I'm talking about. So in the, in, the, in the film industry, one of the changes that studios made um, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years that, have, that has fostered more success is putting their chief marketing officer and the marketing teams in the green light process. In the old world, right, you know, you know, production development executive decides what's to make. And then, you know, once it's already made, it goes to the marketing team to take it to the world. And then, you know, but sometimes the marketing team's like, well, there's no audience for this. Like, what am I supposed to do? Uh, so, you know, they structure the organization, the ones that had more success by putting that marketing team in the process of greenlighting a movie to identify from the get-go, there's an audience for this. So that's just an example of what I'm talking about. Is there something about how New Belgium is structured in its decision-making process and where you sit in that? that others could learn from that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I think that's a fun area to experiment with. I sit on the executive team 
um, and uh, report into the CEO. And so our team is its own unit within the business. But I will say that we structure it in a very um, integrative way. So our goal ultimately is to integrate um, climate action into every department and make sure that maybe it's procurement, right? And that those folks are educated and passionate and owning it and that there are goals within their job descriptions and annual initiatives, right? That are set around carbon neutral. Um, we look at contract integration you know, with our suppliers and stuff like that. So, um, so we work, you know, ultimately we aren't successful if it's just our team working on it. We really need the people in the functional roles throughout the company to see the value in it and also add quite a bit more to the success of those programs. Um, and so same thing, you know, we do with our engineers, for example, they're the ones that are helping to be responsible for all of our internal emissions reductions as well. And um, we also integrate very heavily with our marketing teams and are working with them um, as they're dreaming up campaigns and what's meaningful to our customers and how we can leverage our brand platform to kind of make our own splash ripple and have an impact that's broad you know, bigger and broader than our own, you know, size of a company. And so, yeah, so we, I'm, you know, I'm involved in everything from the company-wide strategic long-term planning um, to, uh, to the work that's happening within our marketing teams, our brewing teams, engineering teams, et cetera. Um, I think you got to grow, grow my dog. She's like one year old, but she acts like an old lady. <laughs> um, but um, so, so yeah, that's always our goal. We also have, um, you know, in our, in our strategy, uh, right aside, alongside our growth goals, um, our customer service goals, our culture goals, our, our um, social and environmental goals, so our climate action goals and everything. So that is right there at the top. So every time any department is looking at their planning, they're looking at how they support that company-wide strategy and, um, and putting efforts towards it. Um, and then we also, as we prioritize projects and our spends and our, and our people's time, um, there's kind of a business calculator for each of those that helps us to prioritize it. And carbon neutral is 10% of the score on that. And it's also 10% of the score when we're making a new beer. Um, so we're deciding, looking at recipes and, and things. And so, um, so we definitely um, prioritize that throughout um, the decision-making process. I think that you can rely heavily on people's passion and, you know, you definitely want to grow that as well and make the culture, you know, feel excited about addressing climate action. Um, and that's one part of it. But as a company, it's, um, I also have seen that, you know, you'll get busy with a quality issue or a volume issue or an expansion project and you'll lose focus on it. And so that's why it's extremely critical that you have that accountability at the executive level and throughout all of our governance programs and our business case calculators and whatnot, because um, I, don't, I don't really, at the end of the day, you got to have kind of that behavioral and cognitive type um, you know, approach where you're feeding the passion and the purpose, but you're also feeding and um, investing in the accountability and the resourcing. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, lastly, real quick, uh, we're, of course, recording this prior to COP26. So it'll probably, you know, people will listen to it post COP26. Is there anything coming up at this summit that you are particularly, um, that stand out to you that you're kind of looking for that you want to see progress on that you want to see commitments to? There's a, a litany of things that you and I would probably agree with on that front, but is there one thing that stands out to you? Like you're really eyeing to see, you know, what global leadership, you know, does on this front. Is there anything that, that stands out to you? I would really like to be able to focus on the specifics um, of, you know, HFC 
phase outs, right, of getting rid of refrigerants. That's, and, you know, according to Project Drawdown, our number one opportunity to um, reduce, you know, carbon emissions. I'd really like to see broader, um, you know, uh, collaboration across the globe on um, general um, taxation structures and, and renewable standards and whatnot. And so, um, but I, you know, unfortunately, I think we're still in that elementary space of um, getting the really meaningful commitments from each country. And um, so I know this will air after, um, you know, this week, but, um, you know, there's some big decisions right now with the budget reconciliation plan and a lot of the money that folks are trying to um, get to um, in order to make some of these commitments on behalf of the United States. Unfortunately, you know, I think what I'll just phrase this. Um, I really hope the United States can align enough internally that we can show up with um, with a strong um, commitment and a signal to the rest of the nations across the world, because that really makes a difference whether or not other countries decide to pony up as well and uh, and uh, be very aggressive in their emissions reductions. Um, I'm on the advisory council for America is all in. We used to be called, um, we are still in. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's really just saying that regardless of what our government is able to agree to, um, you've got around half the economy here saying that we're still agreeing to the very aggressive plans and we'd like to see other countries do the same. Yeah, US and and, and as well for me, uh, particularly obviously China, uh, who has a continued uh, growing influence on on world economies. That is not, I think not too, like the focus on maintaining biodiversity and carbon sequestration Absolutely. strategies is a very big global issue. You know, Brazil and many other countries have an enormous role to play in that and, and getting it into alignment on the value of our, of our forests and, and our soils um, and, and biodiversity in general and helping to solve, solve the climate crisis could be um, an easy point to align on theoretically. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate the time. I appreciate uh, the, the work you're doing, the work you've done, the work you're going to be doing more of and uh, applaud you and the team for, um, yeah, for, for just, just being pioneers in your space in this regard and, and taking it so seriously and making it sort of a pillar of, of, you know, how you live and operate. So kudos for yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks so much, James. I appreciate you focusing on this and and so, um, so we 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 hope that other businesses can see the payback opportunities, both for um, for their long term revenue, but also for the quality of life that they impact across the globe. And um, look forward to to seeing the momentum around climate action grow. Well said. Uh, it's a great closing point. Uh, thanks again, Katie, for the time, and uh, and hopefully we can we can stay in touch. Likewise, yeah. Um, definitely hit, hit us up if you're in Colorado and Fort Collins or North Carolina. Um, you know, we'll, we'll give you a little tour of the brewery. Make sure you get some beer, load up your trunk. So <laughs> Definitely, definitely yeah. will do. As you may not be surprised, and as Katie and I both worried about a bit going in, the climate summit was a bit more bark than bite. We have a lot of work to do, and it's clear we can't just rely on government and world leaders to get us there. We need companies doing their part, and New Belgium is a great example for others to follow. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much for your support. And as always, thank you for standing up for this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life on it. Till next time.